This is Alicia, and welcome to the College Life Podcast. I am super passionate about education, personal development, growth, and bringing out the best in every college student. This podcast will help motivate you, empower you, and bring you clarity and confidence in who you are, in your purpose, and help you take action toward a life you love. Don't wait until you graduate to live your best life. Let's start now. What's up and welcome to the College Life Podcast. It's Alicia here and today I am interviewing one of my friends, Nicholas. He is also an academic coach at Stanford University and I'm super excited because he has some really cool Um, strategies that he's going to share with you and also his college journey is so powerful. So I'm super excited for you to listen. Let's go ahead and get started. Welcome to the College Life Podcast. It's Alicia here and today I am interviewing one of my friends that I actually met for the first time only like six months ago, which is so wild. Um, So this is Nicholas Santoscoy. Did I say that right? Yes, you did. So he is a current academic coach at Stanford University, and we really connected on um, a lot of things just around what we do um, at a col- in a college, and he's going to share his journey, his college journey today, and then we're going to dive into some procrastination and discipline techniques to really combat procrastination, and I'm so excited because I know that so many of you have a hard time with this and also myself as well. So I'm super excited to learn from you, Nicholas, and let's go ahead and dive in. So tell us a little bit about your college journey. Sure. Well, I'll start before college, which is um, when I was in high school, I was uh, a freshman and I had had difficulty. I was in a public school in El Paso, Texas, which is where I grew up. El Paso High School. And I had difficulty with school um, generally. And uh, it just became even more difficult. And I was fairly depressed. Um, Maybe the academics weren't that hard, really, but getting myself to get to them. And then also socially, I felt pretty isolated. And I dropped out of high school. Then I did several things to get back in to better condition. And I actually started college at age 29. I was in Berkeley, California at that point. And uh, I was working part-time as a security guard. And I started at the community college um, in a program for working people. So weekends and evenings. Um, And... At that point, you know, a a challenge for me was that I was extremely anxious about, quote unquote, failing again. I was really worried that I would become, you know, overwrought, overwhelmed, and just not be able to perform and drop out again. So I, um, when I had friends and I continually talked about my feelings and what I was doing and my plans and uh, for, you know, specific homework and what I was going to do. Uh, I also uh, very carefully studied learning strategies. You know, I got books on it and read them over and over again, read them every night. Um, one book was Deborah Hacker's book on college writing, 
handbook for college writers, something like that. And I remember, you know, falling asleep at night with that falling on my face, you know, <laughs> and I just study over and over again, how you write a paper and grammar and all kinds of things. Um, so I did well at the community college very well then, and I was able to transfer to UC Berkeley <clears throat> and major in psychology, which is a long-term interest. And I was still very anxious. That was the next level of anxiety. Um, so I then uh, talked, um, I, I was, went to the transfer reentry center. So there's a place for transfer students like I was, and it was transfer reentry and student parents. So I was reentry and, well, I wasn't reentry because I hadn't been there before, but you know, as non-traditional age. Um, I took advantage of that. Um, I went to a professor's office hours all the time. In fact, a lot of times I would just walk with them after class. Surprisingly few students will take advantage of the fact that a professor leaves the lecture hall and then has to walk to their office. Uh, a lot of times it's across campus and I just walk next to them and talk to them and they were fine with that because they didn't have anything else to do. Yeah. Um, either they were fine with it or they actively liked it, you know. <laughs> and uh, so I did, I was very active in that way. Um, tried to get study groups together when I could, sometimes that worked out. And uh, I did well at UC Berkeley as well as a psychology major for most things except statistics. Um, that was another big challenge for me. I uh, had never learned math well and before high school or in high school. I uh, didn't learn my multiplication tables till I was 25. So statistics isn't math, but it's quantitative reasoning. It's quantitative thinking. So I think that complete, nearly complete lack of quantitative training compared to other people made it very difficult for me. So um, I was challenged in uh, the um, first, the first stats class I took at UC Berkeley and thought I was going to get a C or something, and I didn't want to, I was very protective of my GPA, which, <laughs> you know, uh, and uh, so I, I withdrew from that class, and then I took it in the summer, which is like pass, no pass, so that I could, you know, get better at it, and then I took it again, the full thing for a grade. Oh my gosh, so three uh, times. Three times, wow. yeah, and, and I had taken it in the community college, but it's much easier, and I did fine in the community college. Um, so three times and the third time I got, I don't know, I think an A or something. Um, and, uh, so that was a challenge. I was able to overcome it at that college level. Um, the, the other thing, um, that was, um, nerve wracking then, especially because once I started at UC Berkeley, I was already in my third year or something. So I had to think about, well, what's next? Mm -hmm. um, I didn't have trouble knowing what I wanted to major in. I wanted to major in psychology. I know some people struggle with what should I major in, but I didn't know what to do after that. Was it clinical psychology, working individually with people, you know, uh, focused on mental health, or was it organizational behavior? So working in business and um, consultations or, you know, setting up more effective work cultures. And um, I did things for both. You know, I went to um, clinical psych classes like developmental psychopathology and met with that professor quite a bit, Steve Hinshaw, 
an ADHD expert and went to all his office hours and talked to him. Um, and then I also did research with a um, professor in organizational behavior. Um, and when I wanted to do the clinical psychology more, I would kind of beat myself up for having spent time on organizational behavior and say, oh, why did I waste my time? I should have just been focused. And then when I wanted to do the organizational behavior stuff, I'd say, oh, I really screwed myself over because I spent that time on clinical. <laughs> um, oh my gosh, that constant back and forth had to be really hard. And you feel like it's like you have to pick one, right? Yeah, yeah, I felt like I had to pick one and it was hard. And then finally I realized, like I didn't hurt myself. I help myself. I'm getting a college degree. Like even if I don't know what to do when I'm done, I'm still better off than when I didn't have a college degree. So uh, that was, you know, the main way I, I tried to handle that. And um, I did um, afterwards, I, after I graduated with my bachelor's in psychology, I worked for a bit and decided that graduate school was best for me. And I earned a PhD in social psychology at Yale University. And is that really either of those? Hmm? Like, that's not really organizational or clinical, but it's not really either. Slightly different angle, yeah. Yeah, it's still psychology. In fact, the, the research was on people's beliefs about bias. So, hmm. yeah. Awesome. Well, I have a couple of things that I wanted to follow up on. First off, I just wanted to make an observation that it's really interesting that you took the class three times, the stats class, but you don't remember your grade. You're like, I think it was an A. You yeah. know how sometimes we work so hard and we have put so much pressure on ourselves to like get it right and do it, do it really well. And then it's like thinking about it now, you know, it's just really. Yeah. I mean, it, it, uh, I know I did well in it. Um, mm -hmm. um, but it does bring up another point. I think the reason why I told that story besides the fact that it's my story, um, is that you know when i meet with students when they're struggling it's difficult for them to adopt new behaviors mm. um, such as going to office hours such as walking beside a professor afterwards such as withdrawing from a class or you know taking it past no pass and then doing it again um and uh these are unusual they never had to do this before you know they're successful enough in high school to get into college um and i want people to know the students who are listening to this to know that uh it's okay if you do unusual things to achieve your goal i wanted to do well in stats in part because i was going to become a psychologist of some sort whether organizational or clinical or social and uh so it was uh, personally, professionally important to me. And so I did what it took to get there. Yeah, how do you think that's actually helped you in the rest of your life? Well, I mean, I am known generally for high levels of perseverance and rel mm -hmm. relentlessness. And I think uh, part of it is getting comfortable with, sometimes I've had to do things that other people didn't have to do to get the same thing. I mean, other people didn't have to take it three times to get an A or to do well and, you know, learn it well. 
Right. Well, and it doesn't mean that you're any less successful, capable, any of that, right? No. I mean, (laughs) doing what it takes to get what you want is what makes you successful. Um, So. That's good. Um, You also talked about anxiety in a lot of different ways. I'm curious, like, how does that show up for you? Or how did that show up for you? Do you remember any kind of stories or moments where you felt particularly like high anxiety in a, in a moment with a professor or in a classroom? I don't know. Or even just in your decision-making. Mm-hmm. Well, I told that aspect of it, emphasize that in large part so that students know that that's uh, I assume they're going to say, well, he felt it and he seemed to be doing, he seems to be doing okay. It's not a marker that I'm not fit to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first anxiety I actually felt was before I even went to college. Um, I went with a friend uh, of my mom's who'd gone to UC Berkeley and we walked onto the college campus. She specifically wanted to orient me to it because she wanted me to go to college. And uh, I almost started well, hyperventilating may be a little strong, but I got short of breath because I felt that thought of I don't belong here uh, was strong enough for that. Um, Certainly with some of my early papers, if I got like one little mark off, I would get very anxious and and upset. And then I realized that it wasn't that important because I got a few points off. Um, And then another one was uh, when I was doing research um, and I had a professor uh, that I would be, you know, an advisor, a mentor who was helping me. I'd be very anxious about getting um, things right. And uh, I remember her specifically saying, I'm pretty sure she said something like, you, you know, you're doing okay. You don't have to be this anxious about this uh, wow. thing. So, yeah, that was my uh, experience with it. Now, of course, I wasn't always anxious. There are also lots of great parts about being in college. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, because I prepared and everything, a lot of times I had a great time in the lecture halls themselves. You know, I would sit up front, I would raise my hands, I would ask questions, I would offer things. Um, sometimes is really enjoyable or just having lunch on the hill, you know, and looking around at the beautiful campus, you know, colleges often have campuses and they're often attractive. So um, just enjoying that or times when I, you know, meeting the cool people and having lunch with them, fellow students. So that was also part of the experience. Yeah. What's one thing that you wish you would have known or done when you were in college? And I know this is a hard question because there's so many things that you could say because you work on a college campus now and you see the other side. And there were so many things that I just like didn't realize or know was on a college campus until after I started working at a university. So I'm just curious, what's your perspective? Mm. I would have done more work to help people directly. So peer counseling type things, Mm -hmm. I would have done that more then and even in graduate school. I 
didn't perceive myself as having the time if I wanted my academic goals to do those sorts of things. But I think it would have been worth it. I mean, it worked out anyway because I do what I love, which is academic coaching. So it's not like I was prevented from uh, achieving my career work by not having had that experience, kind of experience sooner. But that's something. Yeah, and I think if you're a student listening to this right now, there are so many opportunities on your campus to actually do that that stuff, like do those like peer mentoring, peer coaching, peer um, peer counseling, peer advising. All of those are literally on our our college campus that I work at. And a lot of times you can actually get paid to do that work as well. So if you want to help people, this is a way to start doing that now while you're in college to learn more skills, to build relationships with people. It's just a really great skill to have. And I think it's going to be important for the future of work. <laughs> That's a whole nother conversation. But, but yeah, I'm super excited um, I, that you brought that up because I do think a lot of students want those experiences and feel like they have something to contribute, but they don't really have an outlet for that or know how to get involved with that. So. Yes. And I'd like to make a couple other point, points about that more broadly. First is that part of the point is, yes, you could do some peer coaching, peer counseling type things, but also the bigger point is that I probably could have fit those things in. So if there's something you want to do, it's possible that you could fit them in. That's one thing. And it'd be good to talk to someone, you know, um, for example, an academic coach <laughs> um, or your advisor on whether you can. On the other, uh, at the same time, I see a lot of students who are suffering and suffering in their learning and the kind of grades they want and the kind of experience they get because they overload themselves. Uh, they have many units and then they get involved in many extracurriculars and they feel shorted on sleep on exercise on appropriate diet on and then they're very stressed out um so be open-minded but keep in mind what's the schedule going to feel like once i'm four weeks into it and think through that as well. Oh, I'll edit this out, but my dog is being a punk. Okay. Um, no, I couldn't agree more with that. It's, it's, and I think it's such a balance. I, I'm sure that you see this a lot with the students that you work with, but it's so hard to want to do all the things and also sleep and eat and take care of yourself. And being mindful of that as you seek these opportunities and you think about what you do really want, what kind of experiences you do really want out of college. Um, I'm excited that you also brought up research as an undergraduate student. How did you even find out that that was a thing? Well, I was very proactive on that. Okay. Well, starting at UC Berkeley, um, because I already had the idea of earning my PhD. Okay. Um, and so before I even was admitted to Berkeley, when I was still at the community college, uh, and I knew I wanted to major in psychology, I went to the psych department and spoke with a person there who was assigned to talk to students and said, what do I need to do 
to prepare for getting into graduate school. And she said, well, you mainly want to get into lab and get a year or two of experience. You want to keep up your GPA. And she said these specific things, the main thing being that you work in a research lab and then that you can do a senior's thesis where you do a somewhat more independent version and write it up. Um, so then I did those things even before I was admitted. I was emailing professors, you know, uh, if I could do research with them and that sort of thing. And then once I got there, I applied for the McNair Scholars Program. So McNair, do you have that on your campus? Uh, yeah, I do. I don't know if yeah. students who are listening know. Yeah, so McNair uh, was a black astronaut. And uh, either he started this or it was started in his honor. Um, and it's a federally funded. And it's a program uh, to help students learn how to do research with the aim of helping them get into PhD programs. It's a hope that it's a professoriate pipeline. Um, and uh, so if you Google your school's name in McNair, you'll come up with it and you can read about it. And it's a very warm and friendly, you know, not mean and rigorous kind of thing, warm and friendly intro um, to the situation. And then I did another research program that's UC Berkeley specific. I just said, well, and I did this one, can I do another one? So that's how I did all that. And that was very helpful having as much research experience and as much of these programs because what they do is they help you do something more on the independent side than you might do if you're just a research assistant in a lab for two years. Yeah, that's really, that's a really cool experience, I feel like. Um, I love too that one of the things that you did was you just went in and asked, what do I need to do to blah, 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 whatever your goal is. And I think that is such a great skill for students who are listening to have is to is, hey, I want to do this thing, or I want to build this skill, or I want this experience, what do I need to do? And if you just ask that question in regards to anything, you're going to, like, uh, people on campus really want to help you. Um, so that's, like, a great, I think, conversation starter, such a, a great, like, question to ask. Yeah. Well, let's um, go ahead and move on into some of the content topic that we really wanted to talk about today around procrastination. So first off, you know, why is this interesting to you? I feel like I'm coaching you, <laughs> but why, <laughs> but yeah, why does kind of procrastination fascinate you, interest you? Yeah. Well, I mean, in a way you could say dropping out of high school is a big act of procrastination. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I mean, the way I, I struggled in high school was a lot of times because I'd procrastinate and, and not do it at all. And then uh, I'd show up at class. I wouldn't have done the homework. I'd feel dumb, you know. And mm. so then I would procrastinate some more, go home and watch TV and eat. So um, I definitely didn't want to be doing that. I knew when I got to college that part of not, you know, losing some ability to keep going was that I stayed on top of my work. <laughs> and I think one of the things that I've um, noticed 
you know, when I ask students, they say, oh, the problem is procrastination. I say, what do you, what do you think you need? And they'll say, well, I need more self-discipline. And I think this is a common immediate reaction. And um, it's true, but it's only partially true. And I'll say what I think of self-discipline is and what I think most people mean is uh, the ability to get yourself to do something even though you don't want to. Mm. So I don't want to start my piece at Tuesday, the day it's released, but here it is 7 p.m. and I'm going to start it anyway. Um, and what's a P-set? A uh, problem set, sorry. No, yeah, I just want to make sure that's clear. Yeah, no, it's true. Not every, not every university calls them P-sets. Yeah, we, yeah, we don't, but I, you know, we talked about this before a little bit, so I kind of knew what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, so, or, you know, I, um, it would really help me to go to office hours um, but I don't really want to, well, you know, I'm going to go anyway. That's also an act of self-discipline. So those are helpful, but, um, really what's more important than that is to realize that procrastination is driven by just to have a single word for it, fear. So fear of the thing that's being procrastinated. Mm. Um, and so what's needed more than discipline are techniques that cut the fear. And then when you have those techniques, you need discipline to get yourself to do those techniques, but usually <laughs> they're not usually as hard. So um, to do. Um, and um, when I say fear, what I mean is, in case that doesn't immediately resonate with people, is uh, it could be, well, thoughts like, well, it's going to be really hard when I do the P-set, um, problem set. Um, and then maybe other thoughts like, I'm not going to do it that well, or remembering, um, I didn't do it that well last time, I'm going to feel dumb. You know? um, and having pictures, uh, images of just like hacking away at it, not getting anywhere. and then maybe thinking of the whole thing is very unpleasant. So if I do these sorts of things, if I talk to myself in this way and form these pictures, of course, I'm not going to want to do it. You could say I've made myself afraid of doing the problem set. Now, it's very common to do this, even when, in fact, the experience last time was, it was hard to get started, but 10 minutes in, I was really into it. And there was that part where I was really stumped and I did start to feel bad, maybe call myself dumb a little bit, but then I got over that. And so maybe, you know, 60% of the time I was kind of into it and rewarded. We tend to forget that and uh, just remember the negative and then inflate the negative in advance. Hmm. So we don't want that experience. We're afraid of that experience. So we procrastinate because we're afraid of that experience. And especially because there's so many other things that don't give us that experience. We can do something that feels that is productive, like answer those emails that come from that extracurricular club that we're involved in and we're supposed to anyway, because that's our role. Um, and that's not scary because emails are quick to understand, quick to answer, right? So it's not scary and you can feel on top of it. Well, if I'm, pro if I'm pro procrastinating something that's more important for something that's still important, that's called productive procrastination. It's still procrastination. And uh, I'll, I'll also say what I think procrastination is, is 
doing the second priority thing. So if I uh, could do the first priority thing, but I'm not, I'm procrastinating. Uh, so if I'm answering those emails, but it's really, this is the best time for me to do that problem set, I'm procrastinating, or to start that paper, I'm procrastinating, or to attack that, you know, sociology reading, I'm procrastinating. So the question then comes back to, well, what are techniques that cut the fear of procrastination? Um, and uh, there are three that I use and recommend frequently. One is the Pomodoro technique. The other is social learning, learning with others. And another is called set up for success. So with the Pomodoro technique, um, as people may know, uh, it refers to working for 25 minutes undistracted and then taking a five minute break. Mm. You can look up the Pomodoro Technique on YouTube, and there are dozens of videos with half a million views each. Um, I like one by Med School Insiders. Um, it's very popular. It's not just for college students. It's not just for graduate students. It's also for um, professionals. It's one of the most robust techniques for cutting procrastination and increasing focus. So how does it cut the fear? Well. Oftentimes when we think of working, we think, well, now I need to do this thing. I'm gonna work on my prom set. And we have three hours, and so it's like three hours of the problem set. Does that sound pleasant? A lot of times we make it <laughs> unpleasant, right? <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah, but if instead of thinking, I just have to work, hack away at this drearily for the next three hours, you can say, well, it's just 25 minutes then it's no longer three hours of undifferentiated misery that we might make it out to be. It's just 25 minutes. So that cuts the fear. So that's one big way is just the time is limited. And another big way that it cuts the fear is that after 25 minutes, whatever discomfort, you know, we have created, you know, anxiety about, am I doing this right? Am I smart enough? Uh, frustration, you know, irritation with the with the person who wrote the problem set. Why did they write it this way? Um, so the the irritation and the anxiety that builds up. If you if you stop at twenty five minutes, well, it only took um, you only had twenty five minutes for all that unpleasantness to build up, and now you get a five minute break. So after you've been doing this a while instead of your you know learning experience whether it's writing a paper or working on a problem set being just you know was it hacking away at the problem while you know distracting yourself multiple times with social media mm. instead it's 25 minutes and then break some relief if there's negative emotions and then 25 minutes and then some relief 25 minutes and then some relief and once you've done that a couple of weeks now you you won't be as scared or as averse to doing the work because it will have been less unpleasant than it was originally. So that's how the Pomodoro technique can help with cutting the fear and reducing procrastination. You can say, well, it's just 25 minutes and then I get a break. Yeah, and that's something that I even do in my work with uh, my dissertation as I'm writing. Uh, I can get so overwhelmed at like, oh my gosh, I have so many things to do. 
And recently I just like wrote a list of like, okay, here are the things that I have left that I needed to complete. And that made me feel better because I was able to really break it down and say, okay, I'm just going to work on this first. And then I'm gonna, so almost like chunking it, but then within the time frame, to also kind of work, take a step back, work, take a step back, work, take a step back. And that kind of helped me see progress, which felt really good. <laughs> yeah. I wrote my dissertation with a Pomodoro technique. A friend of mine uh, wrote his at his kitchen table um, doing 14 to 16 Pomodoros a day, Monday through Friday. Um, so yeah, the, you're talking about time segmentation and ta task segmentation. The Pomodoro technique is time segmentation and then writing micro steps for what you need to do is task segmentation. That also cuts the fear. Yeah, it can be so helpful. And if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't know if I buy into that, why don't you just give it a try? Like it's not going to be that big of a change except for making sure that you're timing yourself and just trying to get started a little bit too. And I yeah. think it's a great strategy to like kind of have in your back pocket. I know sometimes when I share this with my students, I'm like, it doesn't have to be something that you have, that you do every single time you study, but it's a tool that you can pull from if you are feeling that overwhelm, that frustration, that procrastination, that fear. Yeah. Yeah. I did it. I still do it. I did it this morning, I believe, or yesterday morning. Um, yeah. And then I'll mention briefly, uh, another one is social learning. So learning with others, obviously you set up that time to get together with someone and uh, do the work together. It could even be writing a paper and you don't have to talk about it. You can just be next to each other. People just tend to get less upset, you know, and less worried about things and maybe have more fun. So, you know, that is another way that it becomes less aversive and then you're less likely to procrastinate it. And then, well, but yeah, before you go to the next one, I think too, like, how cool would that be if you use the Pomodoro with your friend, because then you're able to take the breaks together and then also hold each other accountable. So even if you're working on two completely different projects, you each work for 25 minutes and then you connect for five minutes and then you work for 25 minutes and then you connect for five minutes. And I know for me, if I am studying with somebody else or writing, um, I can get really distracted. So this, that also helps me again, to kind of focus for a few minutes, but then also still have that connection piece that I so love. But then I'm like, okay, it's time to get back, <laughs> you know, to make sure that I'm keeping myself accountable and also the person that I'm with. Yeah, people use the Pomodoro and social methods. I knew a, a senior and uh, she had, a, by the time she was a senior, she had learned a lot of these things, you know, and so she regularly got together with friends and they would start their Pomodoros at the same time. And software engineers, there are teams of them regularly, you know, professionals who will work in group Pomodoros. So then you can combine the two, it's great. Um, awesome, what's next? Another one, the third one then, techniques for cutting the fear, um, is uh, set up for success. And, uh, the basic idea is you um, set up the materials in advance so that it's easy to get into it later on. So um, a not so academic example, just to show that it's broadly applicable. Uh, one student wanted to journal regularly, but he couldn't quite get himself to do it. 
So in the evening, he would lay out his journal in the pencil, and then the morning he'd get up, he'd go wash up, he'd come back, he'd see us, oh, well, there it is. So he'd sit down and do it. Um, uh, a little bit more academic um, uh, student uh, would, uh, if she knew there was something that she needed to do, like um, some math work or something like that, um, if it was important, and especially if she had noticed that she was kind of resisting it, that is procrastinating it, that in the evening she would do exactly the same thing. She would lay it all out on her desk and then go to bed. And when she got up, there it was, not only to remind her, but immediate access. So when you're doing Setup for Success, it's immediately accessible. You know, I've seen students have to go through multiple clicks to download the homework. Well, if you've already downloaded the homework and have your notebook ready to go, or at least know the page to go to and all of that, at one time point, but the next time point, there's going to be less resistance to going and doing it. So that's very helpful um, to use as well, set up for success. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I haven't really done that much. I've used some routines that I think have helped me kind of ramp into it's like a, a little ramp, I guess to slowly ease myself into it. So if I am like, oh gosh, I need to write today, then I know my first step is to grab my computer and then I pull that out. And then if I need my headphones, if I'm listening to data or listening to my research interviews, I'm putting that on my head. Then I'm, you know, making sure that I have my notebook next to me. Like I'm setting myself up to where, okay, now I kind of have to do it, <laughs> but those are like indicators that tell my brain, I guess, uh, where I've gotten into a routine of, okay, now it's time to work. And I think that's helped me a lot too. So not only setting yourself up ahead of time, but also how can you build in routines and habits that help you know that it is time without actually starting quite yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost, it's easier because in a sense you're doing it for another person so I'm doing it right now I'm setting up for future Nicholas I don't have to do the work <laughs> I'm setting it up and then future Nicholas benefits because there's not a bunch of stuff in the way of starting the work it's immediate um, and often when you set it up that way the very next step becomes clear oh it's this specific problem I need to work on Oh, it's this specific paragraph I need to revise. Oh, it's this specific abstract in this paper that I need to read over and then summarize in my own words. That decision has already been made and it's right there. That's a lot less scary than read the five articles for the sociology seminar, write the 10 page paper and finish the 30 hour computer set, uh, computer science problem set. Yeah, that just feels so different. <laughs> Yeah, and so the point, going back to discipline though, discipline does have a role in overcoming procrastination. And the role is to get yourself to do these strategies. Mm. It actually takes discipline to go on YouTube and watch the Pomodoro videos. And then it takes discipline to do it the first time. And then it takes discipline to keep sticking within that boundary, 25 minutes or something like that, and not start distracting yourself during a week later. Um, and it does take discipline to uh, uh, set up, you know, text a friend to get together with them, either because it's effortful or just because there's a little bit like, well, what if they think I'm weird or I can't do it by myself? 
you have to use a discipline, push yourself to do it anyway. Um, and then for the last one for setup for success, you know, it, it takes some discipline, a little bit of push to actually set up your materials in advance. But it takes a little bit of discipline compared to the lot of discipline uh, that you people usually have in mind when they think, well, I just need to sit down and drive through for three hours. So use the little bit of discipline to use a technique that cuts the fear and then you'll overcome procrastination. Yeah, so if you are struggling with procrastination right now, you have three new tools that you can pull from. I encourage you to try all of them and see which one you like best or potentially, I mean, really all of these are gonna help you. So if you can just try them out, again, I always encourage you on this podcast to step outside of your comfort zone, to try new things. These are three things that you don't need any resources for. All you need to do is try them out. And then you can let us know if they actually work for you. We'd love to hear that. So you also had some techniques for lasting change that you maybe, we have a few more minutes. I don't know how much time you think it would take. I don't know. We can Do take we? a brief, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about techniques for lasting change. Okay, so this is related to the previous because once you have a strategy that works, like the Pomodoro technique, well, how do you make it a permanent habit to do that if it's working for you? Um, it's very common, by the way, for people to start the Pomodoro technique. Oh, that really works. And then they start disintegrating it. And then it doesn't work so well, of course. And then they forget about it. And then later on, oh, it doesn't work for me. So how mm -hmm. do we prevent that? We need techniques for lasting change. And uh, there are three that I have in mind. One is tracking uh, what you're doing, what you've been doing. The second is social accountability. And the third is reviewing the instructional material. So for tracking, a simple example is if you want to do um, at least one clear Pomodoro a day on the hardest thing, then get just print out a free calendar, wall calendar. You can just put monthly calendar printouts for free. Just search the web for that. And every day that you um, do one Pomodoro, you get a happy face. And every day that you don't, you get a sad face or whatever. You can put a check mark and an X, whatever you like. That's an example of tracking. What's nice about that is it's cheap, it's simple, and it's in your face, um, meaning it's on the wall. Then, of course, you can use an Excel spreadsheet, but now you're going to what's digital and what's digital disappears. Excel spreadsheet is not in your face all the time. You can also use an app, which can be very motivating. But again, now it'll be one of the other billion apps you have, and it'll send you notifications that are one of a billion other notifications you have. And uh, what's digital disappears, right? It'll be lost in the forest. So if you're gonna stick with the app, that's great. Um, but just keep in mind when you move away from something uh, on the wall, then it's less of a reminder. So Tracking is one way, um, because when you see that unhappy face for yesterday, you're motivated to give yourself a happy face for today, and you don't forget about the technique. Yeah, I think too, you also see your progress. You see that, oh, I've done this five days in a row now. That feels really good. Agreed. Or I've, I've done it for seven days, or I've done it for 20 days. I mean, think about how different you would feel if you have 
intentionally used a tool and you've been consistent with it and you've also seen the benefits from it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, social accountability is the other one. You know, we often get things done by a deadline because we know there's someone else on the other side expecting it. So social accountability really works. And uh, a simple example of that is you just uh, let someone know what it is you want to do and that you'll text them when you're done. So every morning when I'm done with my workout, I text my friend Jim. You know, I say, uh, five strengths workout done. And then he sends back some whatever he wants, you know, a happy face, a guy who worked out, some kind of cool um, emoji. And uh, I just use that social accountability. Um, I know uh, some students have gotten an accountability partner, like to do writing. And uh, so they will uh, text back and forth what they've accomplished. Um, that's another way to use social accountability. Again, you know, before that social learning thing, you can use um, that for accountability. Uh, if you set up regular meetings with friends to learn, then I'll get, I will have covered this material, I'll be ready to present it by the time we meet. And if you have an academic coach and you meet with them regularly once a week, then of course you can commit to certain actions and you know when they return, they'll ask you about that. So that's social accountability. That's one of the most powerful things that you can do to keep yourself doing. Yeah, I think too, um, I actually see students do this when it comes to the gym. Like they will, have you, have you seen this before? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's, they it's will meet somebody at the gym. And so they, they know that somebody's going to be there either waiting for them if they don't show up. And so they would feel like really guilty or they show up and they do the thing. So I think they don't want to be the person who doesn't show up. And it's like, it, why don't we think about that in, in the way when it comes to the classroom, when it comes to learning. Yeah, do it for everything. Yeah. If, you, if it's important to you. Yeah, and to make it for lasting change, then you just make sure and arrange with that friend, with your mom, with your brother, that you wanna keep this going until the end of the semester or quarter. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, yeah, give it a try. Yeah, this is also why it's so important to have good friends who you really align with, who you feel are supportive of you, who challenge you, who want you to be successful, and that you also want them to be successful. If you can find those people on your campus, make sure that you stick with them. If you haven't found those people yet, maybe work towards finding some of those people who can help support you in some of your goals that you're trying to reach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. What was the third one? The third one is review the instructional material. So an example of this is with the Pomodoro technique. Um, it's a simple idea. You set the timer for 25 minutes and then you don't do anything but that work. You don't check social media. Someone tries to talk to you, say, you know, I still have 12 minutes left. Can I get back to you? So it's a simple idea. And so people think, well, now that I have the idea, um, I don't need to review the instructions anymore. And it's true. You don't need it to remember the instructions basically but it can really benefit you to keep those instructions very clear in mind so that as soon as the first time you're doing a Pomodoro and you're 12 minutes in, 
and you think, oh, uh, maybe so-and-so emailed me, it's very clear in your mind that that's a no-no. And that if you do it, you're breaking the Pomodoro. And if you don't, you're succeeding at the Pomodoro. And if you've looked at the video for the third time, that'll be very clear in your head. Um, so that's one reason, is that we tend to get fuzzy on the specifics. And we really sometimes don't want the specifics. You know, we're motivated at first to start the Pomodoro, but once we're in the Pomodoro, you know, we might want to do something else. Or it could be the same thing for uh, setup for success. You know, um, it's good to write down specifically how you want to set up for success every night. Um, and then review the, instead of just losing track of those specific instructions to yourself, review them regularly. Otherwise, it's easy to get fuzzy and then stop doing the behavior. And then the other reason, of course, is just the motivational value. Um, you want to be very clear on the instructions, but then also remember why you're doing it, which can, rem which can be helped if you look at the uh, specific instructions or plan, instructions that are provided from outside of you, by videos or articles, or your own step-by-step -step plan that you write down to get yourself to do this sort of thing. So the third one is, you know, review the instructional or planning materials regularly. Yeah, and I think sometimes, you know, you don't have those explicitly, which is why, like you said, you have to kind of create your own plan. It might not be write the paper. It doesn't happen. If a 10-page paper doesn't just manifest itself, you have to spend time and you have to break it down. And you can't just, most of us, I would say, most of us or all of us can't really write 10 pages, <laughs> that really strong 10 page paper in one sitting over, you know, five hours or 10 hours, however you want to do it. We're not going to really give our best work. And so how can you break that down? If even if there aren't, you know, quote unquote directions from the professor or instructions on how to do this, it's, it's figuring out, okay, where do I need to start? what needs to come next, what needs to come next, what needs to come next, and then you're able to break that down a little bit. And I also think that help that could help with focus. And you talked about this with the Pomodoro method. It can be so easy to get distracted 13 minutes in. Oh, let me check that thing or let me go review something. And our focus, it we all experience challenges with focus because of we're being pulled in different directions constantly with technology. And we're going to have to, I think, really figure out how to relearn focus and then upcoming years. I don't know if you've experienced that with your students, but with myself and with my students. Absolutely. Focus, yeah. And, and that you brought up, you know, this uh, lasting change technique of reviewing the instructional material. You brought up the idea of writing papers. And that's a good example. Um, you know, many people feel confident they know how to write a paper and they don't need any uh, ideas on how to write a paper. They can just start, and then their confidence starts to plummet. And so, you know, for example, what I did, as I described earlier on when I was uh, in community college, is I read Deborah Hacker's handbook on writing and the specific instructions on how to write an argument, argument, an argument paper. And I reread it, and I reread it, and I reread it. And when I was writing a paper, I'd reread it again. And then I check it like a checklist. So it's the same thing as watching the Pomodoro technique video three or four times in a row and then watching it again every week for a while is 
get those instructions very clear in your head and keep reminding yourself of them, or you write out your specific plan for how you're going to do things and keep reviewing that, those all um, will help you make lasting changes in overcoming procrastination, in writing with less stress, and so on. Yeah, I think that's great. So um, we can go ahead and wrap up, but is there anything else that you want to share, Nicholas, about procrastination, about your college journey, or any other thing that you think students need to hear? Um, I think it's very helpful in the effort for students to feel less, um, to put themselves down less for procrastinating is to want to, uh, and especially given that they probably see themselves as procrastinating, see themselves procrastinating more in college than they did in high school, is to realize that uh, part of that is structural. And what I mean by that is that high school is well set up to prevent procrastination because your behavior is controlled six or seven hours of a day, and then you go home and it's controlled some more by your parents. And a lot of jobs are set up to reduce procrastination. You have to be there at nine. You're working a lot of times in front of other people with what's on your screen, obvious, or in an office. So there's people around you. The time is allotted for that. And you work until five. The time is sectioned for you, and then you get to go home. Between high school and jobs, we have this, this time in college when suddenly things are very unstructured. And at the same time, there's a lot of temptation human beings will tend to procrastinate, especially if for the first 18 years of their lives, they weren't trained for those kind of conditions to regulate themselves. And so students often find it helpful when they realize that it makes sense to procrastinate and to struggle with procrastination when you have something very hard to do and which is harder than you ever did in high school, which will take many more hours. And now you have to do it all by yourself. And you have to allot the time when you're going to do it and figure out everything else out as well, uh, relatively speaking. Plus, you're also away from your parental regulators and anything else you had around you. So understand that it's very commonplace, that it makes sense, that it doesn't predict negatively for your future, that you'll probably move into a much less procrastination conducive arena after college. And uh, then hopefully feeling more comfortable with it, you can also then just say, okay, these are the strategies I'm gonna use to overcome it. And I'm gonna apply the little bit of discipline I need to, to use them regularly. Yes, thank you so much for that, Nicholas. And if you are struggling with procrastination, I better see you doing these methods at some point. Um, thank you so much, Nicholas, I really appreciate you. It was a pleasure, Alicia, and uh, I'm glad to be able to say something that helps your students. Thank you all so much for listening to the College Life Podcast. If this was helpful for you, please make sure that you share it with a friend. Make sure that you also try some of these strategies that Nicholas shared in this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to the mailing list and also check out the Facebook group called Make College Yours. Thank you all so much for listening and I will catch you in the next episode. Have an excellent week.